If we were to have a quick and cursory study of Psalm 145, even in a brief survey of this psalm, you would immediately see the importance of praise and its role in the life of the believer. But of course, this theme of praise is not limited to Psalm 145. If you were to ask me this morning to identify the primary thread which runs through all of the Psalms, it is this thread of praise. Yes, there are laments in the Psalms. Yes, you will find Psalms marked by desperation and intercession. But the clearest note, the loudest note within the Psalms is this note of praise. So accordingly, my hope for us as a faith community, my hope and prayer for the people of the Kirk, is for us to be marked increasingly by praise. And by that, I'm not simply referring to what takes place on Sunday morning. While our opportunities for praise certainly include Sunday morning, they are not limited to what happens in this hour and a quarter. As we consider this morning the nature of the one we are called to praise, as we consider our reasons for praise, and as we consider our manner of praise, I don't want to convey the idea that praise is the result of following a particular formula or strategy. Yes, there are things which we must know, but mere information will not prompt sustained praise from God's people. We need something greater than information. And as I look to the scripture, and as I observe in the lives of those who are following Christ, this is what I see. Praise is the natural overflow of passion. Praise is the natural overflow of passion. I can know a bunch of things and not be inclined to praise. But when information touches our heart and gets into our bones, passion is sure to emerge. And when passion emerges, the natural overflow is praise. And this is what we get from King David. Psalm 145 is not obligatory praise. I realize that on Sunday morning, this is one of our greatest dangers and temptations. The organ sounds, you see the person next to you get up, so you're thinking, well, I better get up. I don't know this song, maybe I should mumble a few things, maybe I should just move my lips. There is a sense of obligation on Sunday morning. For some of us, some of the time, our praise can be obligatory. But that's not what we get from David. This is praise not born from a man who simply has information that he wants to impart to others. But rather we have an inside look at the flavor and the kind of praise that spills over from a life from a man who is deeply in love with his God. Listen to how the psalm begins. I will exalt you 
my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. For David, God is not some God in the distance. For David, God is not some impersonal being, but rather David worships God as the king and as his king. And this is striking coming from one of the most powerful earthly kings in history. David may have been an influential earthly king, but he was acutely aware that there was one who is infinitely greater than he. Notice also the frequency and the duration of David's praise. We might commend David thoroughly if he vowed to praise God every single Sabbath. If Psalm 145 said, I will praise you, Lord, on the Sabbath. Every week I will praise you. We might say, well, good for him. Perfect attendance. What a good king. What a good, uh, what a good Israelite. His testimony would have been impressive enough if he promised to praise God each and every week for an entire year. We might say, that's fantastic. What a great example. But what does he say? He says much more. He says, every day I will praise you. He declares, I will extol your name forever and ever. It's a lifetime commitment of something that he promises to do every single day. Now, if you're looking to how you might personally apply what you're reading and hearing from Psalm 145, and I hope you are, I hope you are thinking through, what do I do with this information? What do I do with this example? How do I make my life more conform to what David is doing? I want you to know that there's a less helpful way to apply what David's showing or modeling. For instance, if you're among those who attend worship here at the Kirk once or twice a month, or maybe even less than that, you might be inclined, hearing Psalm 145, reading Psalm 145, you might say, you know, I'm a once a month kind of person at the Kirk. I'm going to try to do three times a month at the Kirk. Or I, I, may, I may try to just improve where I'm at and come and praise more regularly. Or maybe you're among those who come every Sunday. If you're not sick, if you're on this island, you come each and every Sunday. And maybe you're thinking about David in Psalm 145 and you're thinking, I can still do better. I can go to Bible study during the week on Tuesdays. I can find opportunities to praise every single day and I'm going to do that. I'm going to determine to do that. I don't think that's the best response. Or the best vow to make as you read David's example. I don't think we should answer the call to praise every day by simply trying harder. By making a promise to yourself. By making a determination to do better than you have been. I don't think that's the most helpful way. Why? Why? Because by every appearance... 
praise is the natural overflow of passion. When you care deeply about something, when you care deeply about someone, praise will naturally follow. You won't need to manufacture praise. You won't need to manufacture commitment. It will come naturally to you. So you see, I'm not interested in calling the people of the Kirk to a higher standard of commitment measured by how many times you show up in a year. My great interest for you is this. That you would love God more than you currently do. My great interest is for you to have an ever-increasing passion for your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I want for you more than anything else. And as you grow to love God more, as you have an increased passion for your relationship with Christ, no one will need to ask you to show up more. No one will need to ask you to volunteer more. No one will need to ask you to put more money in the collection plate. Because these are things which you will want to do. You'll be inspired to do. Because it's the natural overflow of your passion. Praise is the natural, normal overflow of passion. Now, I wouldn't want you to think that the prescription I'm giving this morning of passion is mere emotionalism and is therefore devoid of all reason. I want us to note that David does know some things about God. And we're able to clearly see that David's passion for God has some reasonable underpinnings. Look at verse 4. David speaks of God's mighty acts. Verse 5, he references God's wonderful works. Verse 6, he ratchets it up and references the power of God's awesome works. David's mind is recounting actual deliverances accomplished by God. And in David's life, there was many. If you're King David and you're scrolling through your memory, thinking of all the things that God has just done for you, it's a long list. It's a significant list. Maybe his mind first goes to deliverance over Goliath. As a little boy, I was able to sling a single rock and take down this giant of a man. And, and David realized he could only do that with God's help. Maybe he's remembering how King Saul was jealous of him and wanted to take his life, but God delivered him. And then there is an insurrection by David's own son Absalom who wanted to kill him. And again, God delivered David. And these are just to name a few. David considers all that God has done. And it inspires him to praise and then look at verse 8 and following. And what you have is David transitions from speaking about God's accomplishments. And then he begins to celebrate God's nature. He declares the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. 
The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Were we to unpack each and every verse in this somewhat lengthy psalm, you would see a similar rhythm throughout. David is thinking through who God is, and he's thinking about all that God has done and accomplished. So David's passion has reasonable underpinnings, and his passion produces expressions of vibrant praise. So if passion is the key, if passion is the fountainhead of genuine praise, I think we will be helped if we ask the question, how do I get more passion? How do I get more passion? Because if you're at all like me, you would be quick to admit, my passion is not at the level that I want it to be. My affection towards Christ isn't where it needs to be. Yes, I'm speaking for myself. I have a lot of room to grow. I need more affection for Christ, more passion for the things of God. How do I change that? How do you change that? I think part of the answer lies within the psalm, if you scroll ahead to verse 18, where David says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. Near to all who call upon Him in truth. It's possible that we're not as passionate as we'd like to be. It's possible that our affections toward Christ aren't what they ought to be. Because we have not chosen to live in close proximity to Jesus. And by not living in close proximity to Jesus, our passion is found lacking. David's testimony is that God draws near. God lives in close proximity to us when we call upon Him, when we invite Him, when we ask Him to dwell closely. So our nearness to God, our proximity to Christ, is the thing which inflames our passion and gives birth to our praise. I want to offer an analogy and... As is the case with most of my analogies, it's, it's an unusual one, but I hope it will be a helpful one. And the analogy of the need for passion to give birth to praise comes from thinking about the experience of visiting a restaurant and examining the menu. So here's the analogy. You're visiting a restaurant and you're examining the menu. I want to give you a specific example. In my most recent trip to Pompano, Florida, I went to a restaurant that I almost always go to when I'm in Florida. Maybe you've heard of it. Chili's. I love going to Chili's. And if you've ever eaten at Chili's, you know how elaborate their menu is. I mean, it's pages and pages. And part of the reason it's so many pages is almost everything on the menu has pictures. 
And so you're not only reading these long, helpful descriptions, but you're lining up the pictures with the item, and it's very helpful. I find when I go to Chili's, I'm thinking about ordering about 30 things, because I'm just, I'm, my interest is piqued by these beautiful pictures and these helpful descriptions. And even at Chili's, if you ask your server, they'll bring you the nutritional info. So if you're like me and you could use, uh, lose a few pounds, then they'll bring you out the calorie count of all their food and you've got all this helpful uh, description in the menu for you. Now I will tell you that I find these pictures and I find these descriptions uh, to be extremely helpful. But my passion for the food is not fully engaged until when? Until the food arrives. Yes, the pictures are helpful and stimulating. Yes, the descriptives are vital. But nothing replaces the benefit I get when the food actually arrives. My affection for the food is at its highest point when I can smell the food. When I can taste the food, that's when I get really passionate about what I'm about to eat. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that it is a similar experience when it comes to getting to know God. It's a similar experience to when it comes to getting to know God. There is a way to know some things about God by picking up this book, by picking up the menu and reading the descriptions and pouring over all the helpful information in here. You can read the menu of God's Word and learn some things about Him. And I'm pretty sure that almost everyone, if not everyone here today, has, has read the menu. Or has read significant portions of the menu. And having done that, you have some intellectual information. You know some things about the God spoken of in this book. But here's my worry. Here's my fear. That many who have read the menu of God's Word have not yet tasted the goodness of God. Just like it's possible to stand outside a restaurant, read a menu, and walk away without ever ordering or eating, I worry that there are many who have read the details and the information in this book, but for whatever reason have yet to taste the goodness of God. And as a result, their passion for God is quite limited. Their affection for Christ is not where it should be. And this is why I think David writes Psalm 34. You may remember Psalm 34 verse 8, where David's great exhortation to his people is what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not enough to know some things about God. We must also experience God. It's when we experience God that our passion is inflamed and our praise is lifted up. 
Now, if you've ever dined with me, and as I look out here this morning, I've had lunch with a few of you, I've had dinner with a few of you. If you've ever dined with me and watched me closely, particularly if I'm eating a gourmet hamburger or if I'm cutting into a medium rare filet mignon, you will have noticed that I'm a noisy eater. I don't mean that I chomp and, and I don't mean that I'm rude, but I am. Mm. Mm. I, I'm, I'm, I let you know throughout the meal. You know, I've got this facial expression, these little groans uh, of pleasure when I eat food. I am passionate about eating. And, and Allie gets so embarrassed, especially when we're in a restaurant and I start doing, mmm, mmm, this is really good. She gets embarrassed. She gets very self-conscious about my verbal expressions of delight in the food I'm eating. And, and some of you know that the delight I have in food doesn't end with a meal. I'm, I'm a bit of a food evangelist. I feel that if I've come across an outstanding dish at a particular restaurant, I want to tell others about it. Why do I do this? Why am I like this? Why am I always groaning and moaning while I eat dinner in a restaurant and then writing on the internet how delightful my experience was? Why do I do that? Because praise is the natural overflow of passion. It's not just with the things of God. It's with most aspects in life. If you are passionate about something or passionate about someone, you will naturally be inclined to praise. Let me give another example. If you have ever attended an NFL football game, You'll know what I'm talking about. Or even if you've watched an NFL football game on TV. If, if you're one of the four people in the church who've never done this, go home this afternoon, turn on Fox, and, and watch this afternoon's game. Because you will get a sense of what happens when passion turns into praise. Because at an NFL football game, almost everyone in the particular stadium is dressed the same way. They all have team jerseys on with their favorite player's number on them. Many of them, or some of them anyway, even paint their faces. Some of the real crazy ones paint their bodies. I mean, this is serious stuff. They've got foam fingers, they're waving flags. Fans are excitable. They, they love to praise because they're passionate. If you've ever been to an NFL football stadium, you know how noisy football fans are. If your team scores a touchdown, it can be deafening inside of an NFL stadium. Now I want you to imagine with me a, a fictional scenario. Now that I've given you a little bit of insight as to what NFL fans are like, imagine this. You go to an NFL game and you, you go through the gate and immediately an usher hands you a card. And the card has some instructions for you as a fan attending this game. And here's what the card reads. Dear fan, we're delighted to host you for this afternoon's game. We appreciate your devotion to our beloved team. However, we would ask that you not raise your voice that you not cheer or applaud at any point during this afternoon's game. We want you to enjoy the game, but please do so quietly and reasonably. Now knowing the passion of your average NFL football fan, can you imagine them heeding that kind of instruction? No! 
That's because where there is passion, praise must inevitably follow. Now for the record, I am one of those crazy fans who likes to scream and carry on like a fool at professional sporting events. No, I've never painted my face, uh, but I have uh, been quite excitable attending such games. So my illustration isn't meant as a criticism as much as it's given as an observation. Which leads to this question. If we can get so worked up about a game, so worked up about a game that has no eternal significance, can we not offer even more passion and praise when we gather to worship the living God? How much more does God deserve our excitement and our praise than the Miami Dolphins? Now, I pick on the Dolphins because I've taken a brief survey and that seems to be the team of choice. Some of you are thinking, Bryn, wrap this up. I've got to go watch the Dolphins today. Some are thinking, good thing I didn't go to church today because now I'm ready to watch the Dolphins. Can we not give much more passion and praise to the Almighty? Now, I realize that excitement will look differently in this context than it does in an NFL football stadium. I want to just clear the air this morning and say, please don't come with your face painted next Sunday. That's not the response I'm looking for. No need to, to go to the sign man and have a giant Kurt flag done up that you can wave on Sunday. No, we're not going to get Team Jesus t-shirts printed for all of us to look the same. That's not where I'm going. But I do hope, I sincerely hope, that the prospect of praising the one who has redeemed us from sin and darkness, that worshiping this God excites us, causes our passion to spill into praise. I do hope that as we think about the nature of God and the goodness of God and all the things that God has done in human history and all the things He's done in my history and in your history, that we might become noisier in sharing with others what God has done in our life. I want to quote a famous Methodist pastor. You'll know him, John Wesley. In 1761, he wrote a, a brief description of how congregations should praise God on the Lord's Day. And there was one particular instruction which resonated with me. Wesley writes, and, and it's interesting phrasing, sing lustily. Never heard that phrase. Sing lustily and with good care, courage. <laughs> this, is, this is harsh, but I think it's helpful. Beware of singing as if you are half dead. Beware of singing as if you are half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. And I think I've shared with you, I, as a young man, as a teenager, I was one of those who sang as though I was half dead or half asleep. And, and I realize we're all at various stages in our journey with God. But, but I want to prompt you to where the journey should go 
If you've tasted the goodness of God, if you've experienced the goodness of God, you should not sing as though you're half dead. You should sing with a joyful heart, with an excited heart, thinking through all that God has done for you. But of course, telling you to praise a certain way can be a waste of time. Why? Because praise is the natural overflow of passion. So my aim here this morning isn't get to get you to praise a certain way. It's to get you to experience God in a certain way. And when you experience God in a certain way, your passion for Him is heightened. So we need to move beyond rituals, beyond externals, and we need to find ways to draw near to God and to grow our passion and affection for Him. Now I hope it didn't sound like I was discouraging gathering information from this book. This book is most important. It is the most important book you could ever read. I want you to read it. But eventually we must move beyond the descriptions found in this book. And we need to share the experiences that others have talked about in this book. There must come a point in time, repeatedly I hope, where we're tasting the goodness of God. So my plea this morning, very simply, is to repeat David's words from the 34th Psalm. What I want to leave you with this morning is, is the plea, or my begging you, taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And having tasted the goodness of the Lord, I am confident, I am certain, that when you taste the goodness of the Lord, the overflow, the consequence, is you will become a person increasingly marked by praise. I dream for us all to be marked by praise. Share what God has done for you and in you. Amen.